Good evening. Well, last night here at GB News, we said Boris Johnson absolutely must apologise for what's happened because it was perfectly obvious that he'd been at that party on the 20th of May. He was doing everything he could yesterday to avoid the media. Um, and I said yesterday I thought maybe an apology was the one way that he might just be able to save himself. In fact, I felt what he needed to do, frankly, was to bare his soul. You know, enough of these Barnard Castle-type defences. Well, Boris Johnson, of course, had Prime Minister's questions today, and this is how he began. Mr Speaker, I want to apologise. I know that millions of people across this country have made extraordinary sacrifices over the last 18 months. I know the anguish that they have been through, unable to mourn their relatives, unable to live their lives as they want, or to do the things they love. And I know the rage they feel with me and with the government I lead when they think that in Downing Street itself the rules are not being properly followed by the people who make the rules. And though I cannot anticipate the conclusions of the current inquiry, I have learned enough to know that there were things we simply did not get right. And I must take responsibility. Well, that, I thought, was actually quite a good start. He was beginning, I hoped, to open up. But then we got this. Number 10 is a big department with the gardeners as an extension of the office, which has been in constant use because of the role of fresh air in stopping the virus. And when I went into that garden just after six on the 20th of May 2020 to thank groups of staff before going back into my office 25 minutes later to continue working, I believed implicitly that this was a work event. But, Mr Speaker, with hindsight, I should have sent everyone back inside. I should have found some other way to thank them. And I should have recognised that even if it could be said technically to fall within the guidance, there would be millions and millions of people who simply would not see it that way. I believed it was a work event. What are you doing, Boris Johnson? Taking us for idiots or something? Even the use of, oh, well, the garden was used a lot because of fresh air. That very day, senior cabinet ministers told us we were allowed to meet in fresh air. Yes, one person to one person with a two-metre distance. So there you have it. It isn't really an apology. It's a half-apology, delivered between gritted teeth, almost as if he's going through the motions, almost as if he's doing it because it's Prime Minister's questions and he simply has to. I'll tell you one word he didn't use. He didn't once say sorry. I don't know about you sitting at home, but I think sorry has a much deeper and stronger resonance than saying, I apologise. He didn't do that. I guess the real question is, has he changed anyone's mind today? And the question I'm putting to you, is this apology enough? So please, let me know what you think. I'll read out as many of your comments as I possibly can. The email, the new email, is farage at gbnews.uk, or, of course, you can tweet me using the hashtag Farage on GB News. I don't think, as a result of today, he's going to be gone as leader quickly. 
but I don't think public opinion, personally, would have shifted in his favour in any way at all. What I'm also fascinated by is what is going on inside the Conservative Party. I've heard plenty of mutterings over the course of the last couple of months, but what's really going on? Well, to sum up that situation, just how precarious is or is not Boris Johnson within the Conservative Party is our political editor, Darren McCaffrey. Well, Darren, it was, as I said, I mean, I think half an apology, but there was an apology given at the beginning. I think he had no choice but to do that. Uh, what's the response of his colleagues been? So I think it may have won over a few. It certainly bought him a little bit of time. In the end, though, is the Prime Minister where he is? He spent this afternoon in the tea room in the Commons. That's unusual. Which he hardly ever does. Yep. Talking to MPs, trying to convince them uh, that he's still the right man for the job. Then there was a 1922... Ah, OK, we're going to sort your microphone out. We're not hearing Darren very clearly, which is a bit of a bore. But the point he was making was that the Prime Minister was in the tea room this afternoon, talking to colleagues. And one of the criticisms of Boris Johnson, even before he became leader, is that he, is that he didn't actually spend enough time in the tea rooms or make enough of a fuss of backbench MPs. Indeed, I... and we had a meeting in the 1922 committee this afternoon. Michael Gove was there defending the Prime Minister. Interestingly, tonight, Cabinet Ministers almost regimentally are taking to WhatsApp groups and to Twitter and other platforms defending Boris Johnson, mm -hmm. insisting he's the right man for the job. And quite extraordinary, really, that they're having to do this is a sign of how they're worried they are. And they should be. Douglas Ross, who's an MP but also the leader of the Scottish Conservative Scottish. Party, yeah. came out today and said he should resign. Ruth Davison has just tweeted saying that was the right decision of Douglas Ross to take. 23 MSPs in Scotland wow. have said he needs to go. Essentially, the Scottish party now has just drifted off, which raises whole other questions about if he doesn't go, who they would campaign for at the next election. And is that because the Scottish Conservative Party has become a, a, quite a separate political party, effectively? I think in part, but they also recognise the political reality is that Boris Johnson is not particularly popular in Scotland. No, okay. And thus, added on to this, uh, it makes it difficult. I think in the end, though... Where we're at, and there's talk about letters going into the 1922 committee, and it does seem that some have gone in today. Nowhere near the threshold, I think, for 54, though things are changing pretty quickly. In the mind of Conservative MPs, uh, Nigel, are two things. Uh, first of all, what is Sue Gray going to decide? And many of them are holding off for the and time. are we being. expecting next week to hear on that? It's so difficult to tell. I mean, the, the, the funny thing is that her recommendations or her conclusions keep getting delayed because there are further revelations about more parties. And that is something that is definitely playing on Conservative minds, is, is this the end? Are there going to be further reservations? Frankly, does Dominic Cummings have more up his sleeve that he might release? Mm. So the emphasis is going to be on Sue Gray and what she concludes, how damaging that might be. That's brought the Prime Minister a little bit of time. But also, frankly, even for those that want to get rid of him, do they want to spark a leadership contest when he may well win? And if he wins, of course, and this happened with Theresa May... Yeah, they botched it in a sense, didn't you, they? Because, because they've got 12 months. You can't then challenge him for 12 months. Yeah. And I think that if he manages, and it is an if, genuinely it is an if, if he manages, though it's probably more likely than not, to hang on for the next weeks uh, and months, the other key moment will be the local elections on the 5th of May. And at the moment, again, that is looking very tricky for so the we, Conservative Party. So we've got the whole of London. Whole uh, of London. Yep. Lots of districts, um, councils up for election or certain sections, a third of mm. uh, them up. We've also got elections in Scotland and Wales 
as well. Just to give you a sense of this, in London there was polling done recently that suggested the Conservative Party is looking at its greatest defeats for 50 years. They could lose Wandsworth. They could leave, lose Westminster. That's how bad it's looking. And, you know, as always said with Boris Johnson, that the relationship is transactional with the Conservative Party, with MPs, that they like him because he if wins If they think elections. he's a winner... If he starts to lose elections, yeah. that relationship goes yeah. downhill. It's really tricky at the moment. And in the end, I think Conservatives will give him the days, the weeks, until that Sue Gray investigation. But in the meantime, if there are further allegations that prove to be true, God knows where we are. And, and I say that because at the beginning of December, and this is what there's noise about what was said and who was where and whatever. At the beginning of December... Boris Johnson stood in front of journalists day after day. He went to the Commons and he said there was no party and the COVID rules were adhered to. Today, in the Commons, he stood up and said not only there was a party, Has but he, he was did, at it. Did he mislead the Commons? I think it's difficult to say because he would say that was in relation specifically to the Christmas, to Christmas. event. Yeah. But, but, but in saying that, and this is one of the other outstanding questions, is when was he aware, when did he realise that it was not an inadverted work event that he thought he was at? But was it a party? Was it the day after? Was it six months? Or was it simply this week when the allegations were released? And that's where it comes, becomes tricky. And there's loads of questions about, do you take your wife to a work party? Surely when you see lots of booze on the table, did he have a drink? And sausage rolls. And sausage rolls. So <laughs> it, it, it's tricky. I don't think lots of MPs are terribly convinced by this, but they're trying to weigh up all those different pieces okay. in the end. Uh, the next 28, 48 hours or 24, 48 hours are going to be fascinating. But the key moments will be the Sue Gray investigation, yep. and if he holds on to that, the local election On the 5th of May. Darren McCaffrey, thank you very much indeed. Well, that's talking about what's going on in Westminster, but what's going on more broadly in the country? That's what interests me, and I do think this date of the 5th of May, you might not have heard much about it so far, but we're going to hear a lot more about it as it approaches, because it really, really matters. Now, the Red Wall... That is absolutely the key, of course. They're the seats that the Conservative Party took from the Labour Party at the last election on the back of Brexit as much as anything else and on the back of getting Brexit done after the agony we'd been through. And I am no doubt that Boris Johnson was the right man for that moment. I absolutely believe that. Now, there was a phrase in the last general election that started to be used, and it was Workington Man. And sure enough, Workington went to the Conservative Party and it was won by a fellow called Mark Jenkinson, and he's with me here in the studio. Mark, good to see you. You as well. You know, working as a man and, you know, fantastic victory for you and for the party and for Boris Johnson. Absolutely. To be fair. And whilst I'm not happy with the way Brexit is, there's a lot more to do. But actually, we've left. There's no going back. We had, because we left, a vaccine rollout. You know, I think the Prime Minister made the right appointment. So I'm not saying everything about Boris Johnson is wrong, but there's this side of his personality. It's this relationship with the truth that voters are starting to question. So I'm going to absolutely say that he has achieved some things since 2019, that I think he was the right man for them. But he's becoming an electoral liability to you, isn't he? Particularly in the Red Wall. So that's not what I see on the doorsteps uh, at the moment. And we are in full campaign mode for elections in May as well. So how, much, um, how many what, seats have you got up in May? In, in so we, we've got brand new unitary uh, authority elections. So all so out right lot. across Cumbria, right, okay. uh, new unitary authority elections. Yeah. 
Um, so one of the first things I would say to you is to, to look at who's uh, making the calls for the PM to resign. Uh, and it is absolutely those people who want to steal uh, that Brexit um, from us. Uh, and the seem as, um, as an electoral liability to them, not to us. Well, William Ragg has called for the Prime Minister to resign. He was a very early Brexiteer amongst MPs in the north of England as well. Roger Gale has called for him to resign. Well, Roger was more of a Remainer, and I get that. These things aren't unusual. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, of course, and Keir Starmer, but then that's yeah. his job as leader exactly. of the opposition. Although, I have to say, you know, objectively, he was quite good on his feet today, Keir Starmer. I mean, you could have said it was a fairly open goal. But there is disquiet, isn't there? I mean, you're there in the House of Commons. There is disquiet. But I'm more interested in what's happening actually out there in the real world. I mean, let's remember one thing. You know, and you've been a, a political campaigner for a long, long time, and we've been on the same side we for have. many, many years. <laughs> you know, this question of borders, and you wouldn't know as well as I do that actually a big part of the Brexit vote in the North was taking back control of our borders. What is happening across the English Channel is enraging people in the Red Wall. He's failing very badly on that, and tomorrow's a calm day. There'll be loads of boats that come again tomorrow. Uh, the levelling up agenda appears to be, well, not much more than talk of the Northern powerhouse. I mean, there are areas here on which they're not delivering, but it's his personality. This is the point I'm making to you, that you can be the happy chappy, you know, you can be the joker, you can be the clown, but actually right now what people are looking for is straightforward honesty. And Mark Jenkins, I put it to you, that when the Prime Minister said that he went to an event which was advertised as bring your own booze. I mean, let's not you know, pretend. And he says to the House of Commons he thought it's still classified as a work event. Doesn't wash, does it? So I think we've all got stories from particularly that first lockdown. Uh, and we heard from Jim Shannon yesterday, so particularly... Very Halloween. moving. It was, it was. I mean, you couldn't fail to be moved listening. And there are, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of stories just like that. We had two funerals in my family. One very early on in that lockdown. That, you know, my wife could only attend on her own because I couldn't let anybody in to watch the children. Oh. Uh, we had another one that I had to listen to outside. So does it make me angry and should it make my constituents angry to think that people were potentially socialising in Down Street Garden? And absolutely it should. But, of course, for the detail around that, we do need to wait for that Sue Gray inquiry. Well, we can wait for the Sue Gray inquiry, but I put it to you that what Boris Johnson did today was a half-apology through gritted teeth. The first sentence or two, I thought, this is good... He's fessing up, and that's what he needs to do. But then to pretend that he still thought it was a work event. It's not working, Mark, is it? He reiterated a number of times um, the, a full and unreserved apology for all of the misjudgments that uh, made on his watch. These were his words. Made on his watch in Number 10 and across government. I don't think it comes much... Uh, broader... But he still or, thought an event that said, bring your own booze... But, I mean, I don't know if you've been to Number 10, but it is, it's a huge, sprawling complex. You know, people... Oh, we'll come make, on, don't people, give me that. It is. I mean, but he attended he, this event. He, he did, uh, and he set out his um, understanding of events, and, of course, that, will, that, that Sue Gray inquiry will deal do you think with a, a lot of that. Do you think Boris Johnson is a truthful man? I do think he's a truthful man. I think, he, um, I think when we see that optimism that people, that voters like, uh, I think there is, that is absolutely... Him, he believes what he's saying on the borders bill. That you said we need, we absolutely need to deliver on the borders bill. That will uh, make no got, difference at all. That's gone through. Uh, make the, no the difference house at now. all. You know it won't. I know it won't. Well, I think it gives us uh, options such right. as offshore processing and things that will allow us um, to. It doesn't. You know yourself. It doesn't take much of an example to be made 
to shut down potentially shut down those uh, oh, people smuggling the boots. Once people don't want to spend their three, five thousand euros because they're not sure of getting to Britain, it will make a difference whether this and will... that's what we need. Well, the jury's out on that one. We'll wait and see. Finally, will he still be leader this time next year? I think he will, absolutely. I think he'll lead us into the next election. I think my constituents uh, are still telling me on the doorstep they think he's been dealt a bad hand uh, in Covid particularly um, uh, and, you know, picked up... Uh, some really toxic Brexit stuff as well, which he's managed to deliver on, as you know. Um, but the sea has been dealt a bad hand and are absolutely willing to give him the benefit of the doubt to deliver right. on the things that we promised at the last election. That was Mark Jenkinson from Workington. But in his own constituency, polling done two weeks ago suggests that Labour are now on 46%, the Tories trailing, and Reform UK on the rise with 7%. We'll get you back because Workington Man is going to be a great barometer, Mark, as we go through the next few months and the next few years. Thank you very much indeed for coming in. Is an apology enough? Has Boris Johnson changed your mind? Has he convinced you that actually he's a very open, honest, truthful man? Your reaction so far? Colin says, a serial liar using more lies to promote his apology for his previous lies, further insulting the people who pay him. Strong stuff. Steve says, watching the practice liar Boris trying to wiggle his way out of a succession of deceptions. A leadership challenge must take place, yes, but that needs 54 letters, and they're not even halfway towards that at this moment in time. Chris says, I do not consider his apology is enough. He is hiding behind the inquiry by Sue Gray. Well, we'll see what Sue Gray has to say. Rosemary on Twitter says, no, Boris should not resign, and yes, he has apologised, and that should be good enough. A viewer, Anonymous, says, yes, let's face it, there are an awful lot of people who have been just getting on with their lives and not bothering about the lockdown. Do you know, that last point really interests me, because, actually, if Dominic Cummings had said, you know what, it was a lovely day, it was Easter Sunday, we'd had COVID as a family, we'd not been well, and yes, we did go for a drive. We did go for a walk in the Bluebell Woods and by the river. Do you know what? I think most of us would have said, well, you know, probably we might have broken one or two rules as well. But no, he insisted that it was a journey to test his eyesight, and it's been going on like that ever since. Now, Prince Andrew's lawyers were fighting very hard to stop this civil lawsuit from going ahead. The argument that was used was as a result of the Epstein case that a deal had been done and that actually Virginia Dufresne could not take action because, after being paid half a million dollars, she'd agreed not to take any further actions against anybody associated with Epstein. Well, that's been thrown out. And now Prince Andrew faces a civil lawsuit for sexual assault. So what does that all mean? What in America is a civil lawsuit versus a criminal lawsuit, and is he going to be called to give evidence? What does it all mean? Joseph Tully is a criminal defence attorney and legal author based in San Francisco who has closely been following this case. Joseph, good evening, and thank you very much indeed for joining us. Yes, sir, good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning, of course. I apologise. Eight hours is a big difference. <laughs> the... Just please explain to an English and British audience, what a civil lawsuit actually means. Certainly. So um, I, I always break it down to my clients uh, like this. When you hear civil, 
think dollar signs, think money. When you hear criminal, think jail and think bars. Um, so here, the worst that uh, Prince Andrew could lose is money, which I do criminal law. So uh, in comparison to being confined in a cage behind bars, um, it's not as bad. So she wants money and she's prepared to go through this court case to get money. So would it be possible, is it likely, that actually what he decides to do is to settle the money and avoid the court case? I do think that very much. Um, again, it, it, legal fees would be astronomical, but I think the bigger consideration here would be damage to his reputation. The keeping the case out of court would be infinitely more beneficial in terms of just keeping the allegations, true or false, out of the public view, keeping the daily circus that this case would become out of the public mindset, out of the tabloid, so to speak. So to me, I think avoiding a lawsuit would be infinitely valuable to the prince. Yeah, and if the, but if the case did go ahead, there's no way the court can force him to go and give evidence, is there? Uh, not in a civil case. The judge has ruled that he is, uh, he is required to uh, answer questions under oath in preparation for the, for the civil trial. However, if he simply refuses everything, um, the judge can make rulings on the record and hold him in contempt, but I don't think that they would have the power to come and physically uh, arrest the prince and bring him to America uh, for uh, contempt of court. I think that would be a stretch. OK, so if he wants this all to go away, what kind of dollar signs are we talking about, in your opinion? Well, uh, the 2008 uh, settlement with Goofree and Epstein was a half million dollars. This is 2022. Inflation has gone up. I, I would say in the, in the several millions of dollars, if not uh, tens of millions. And, and I'm just basically guessing. It, it's, it's just how do you put a value on her allegations, on her experiences uh, being sexually trafficked and being used for sex? around the world uh, with the prince is her allegation. So uh, putting a price tag on that is really a, a function of emotion. It's a function of how much leverage in court. Um, and it's a function of negotiation. Ali, thank you very much indeed for coming on and explaining that to us. And that was all really pretty clear. Now, my what the Farage moment, and I never thought this would happen, but I'm agreeing with European Union regulators. No, it's absolutely true because they're warning the European's Medicines Agency are warning that repeated, frequent COVID-19 boosters could adversely affect the immune system. Now, they're not applying this to the third jab, the current booster, and they're not necessarily saying it applies to the fourth booster, but they are saying after that. What is interesting is, despite the massive government campaign, huge amounts of expenditure telling us to get the booster, it is still only 62% of the population that have had the booster. And I'm st I have to tell you, folks, I've still not been convinced to have the booster. So, have the European Medicines Agency actually got a point? Well, joining me is Dr David Strain, Senior Clinical Lecturer at the University of Exeter's College of Medicine and Health. Uh, David, you know, we, we're told that two jabs and it'll all be over... Um, we're being told that get the booster, 
it'll all be over. Israel, who've moved on to the fourth jab, one or two South American countries now talking about the fourth jab. Do the European Medicines Agency have half a point here? Um, so it's very important to figure out what they're actually talking about here. We know that this third jab that we're giving people is a tremendous benefit of reducing hospitalizations, the risk of going to ITU and death. And actually, that's the biggest difference between the UK and many other European, American or um, rest of the world countries where they're seeing Omicron resulting in a massive rise in hospitalizations and deaths that we just aren't seeing here in the UK. Similarly, for the immunocompromised patients, we are seeing that they often do require a fourth and in the near future, possibly even a fifth jab because their immune system takes that extra little bit of um, stimulus to give it the protection that we need. But what this EMA report is talking about is whether this is an ongoing process, whether we're going to end up boosting every four to five months. Now, the reality is that if we end up in a position where we are trying to do that, then the immune system is going to start reacting against those boosters. Every time you get a booster, you produce a protein that your body then tries to react against. But if you're already ready to react against it, then that will cause problems for all of us. Um, and, and that's where they're coming from. There is also the additive impact that has on the health service. If the GPs and the district nurses and all the community is rallying around to give boosters every three or four months, we cannot do that core job of providing health that we need for all the healthcare um, around the whole country. Yeah, because it, you know, it is a massive, a massive labour-intensive effort to do this. So, I mean, where do we draw the line on this, in your opinion? Well, at the moment, we are seeing that that first booster that we're giving is giving really good protection against admission to hospital, against um, the need for ITU or respiratory support in Omicron. And we are watching those numbers very, very carefully. Israel has gone ahead and they're giving their fourth booster, but then Israel followed a different strategy in the outset to the UK. Um, uh, Sir Chris Whitty actually made a very, very good call that he put an increased gap between the first and the second dose that they didn't do in Israel. And that increased gap, based on his vast experience in immunology, is what has given us better protection. What we are thinking is that probably around six to eight months, we may need a booster, but we are really hopeful that by that time we're going to have an Omicron-specific booster that will prevent this virus spreading even further across the board and last us through so eventually this might become an annual jab along with your flu jab if you're at the at-risk population. Do you understand why nearly 40% of us have not had the booster? Uh, we're reluctant about being jabbed regularly. And we also take the view that you might be quite right about it making us less ill if we get it, but it doesn't do anything to stop us catching COVID. Do you understand why there is a growing, a growing gentle resistance to this? Absolutely. I can fully appreciate that. So if you imagine that your vaccine gives you an antibody suit, it's giving you the right antibodies that you need to protect you. Um, and if we take the soup analogy a bit further, it is giving you the vaccine that's protecting you against the, uh, the water, the salt, the sugar and the cornstarch that's in just about every soup. Omicron came along and it didn't give you 
the full protection. If you take away one of those ingredients, you don't get the full protection. That booster gives you increased response against the other three ingredients of the COVID, and that is giving you the additional protection that you need to stop you going into hospital, into ITU, and ultimately dying. Now, I fully appreciate that there are many people who are getting COVID fatigue, for want of a better term. We're all fed up of it. We all want to go back to our normal lives. In my clinical role, I work as a consultant looking after patients with COVID. Let me just say that although the triple dose, the, the booster, isn't stopping people catching it, it is very, very rare for me in my clinical role to see people who are triple jabbed needing hospitalization. We're still seeing occasional patients who've been double vaccinated and lots of patients who are as yet unvaccinated that are ending up in hospital. And in the rest of the world that haven't had this booster strategy, we are seeing the death rates and the hospitalization okay. and the ITU rates are tracking the increased rates that they're seeing. Okay, David Strain, said with great passion, thank you very much indeed. COVID fatigue is what David talked about there. Well, he's right. And yet we don't talk very much, do we, about the origins of this? Well, maybe we should. Because it was revealed today that leading British and US scientists actually quite deliberately decided not to tell us that it was likely that the COVID had originally accidentally leaked from a, a laboratory, but they were concerned that that debate, believe it or believe it not, would harm science in China. Yep, email showing. Sir Jeremy Farrer, director of the Wellcome Trust, on the 2nd of February 2020 said, a likely explanation was that COVID had rapidly evolved from a SARS-like virus inside human tissue in a low-security lab. The email sent to Dr Anthony Fauci and Dr Francis Collins of the US National Institutes of Health went on to say that such an evolution may have accidentally created the virus prime for the rapid transmission between humans. But a leading scientist told Sir Jeremy that further debate would do unnecessary harm to science in general and science in China in particular. Well, we must do everything we can, must we not, at all stages and all times to protect China, clearly. It's that time of the day. The GB News pub has been declared open, and I'm joined by former Conservative MP and now, of course, TV presenter with his great British railway journeys. And, and Michael, I have to say, you're probably better known now, actually, aren't you, Wait for the railways? Minute. Nigel, cheers. Cheers. Very good to good see, see you. Mm. Yeah. You, I mean, the, the, the railways, you're one of these people who, I mean, that 1997 shock that, that we all remember, and, but you reinvented yourself magnificently as a TV presenter. An amazing piece of luck, actually. Because Luck? Well, you think of the hundreds of people who come out of politics and who don't find another birth. Yeah. And I think it, I think it is um, largely luck. I mean, actually, I made a television programme um, shortly after I had lost my seat. And it was, it was a railway journey. It was in a series of railway journeys, but you had a different presenter each week. And I had the luck that I made it about my father, and he had been involved in the Spanish Civil War yeah. with his brothers fighting on the other side. And this was a very emotional programme, and it was maybe a side of me and a part of my story that people didn't know. Well, the luck was that ten years later, when someone came up with this new idea of doing railway journeys and looking at history using a Bradshaw's guide, fortuitously, the woman who was the chairman of the production company had ten years before 
been the commissioning editor at the BBC. And she said, oh, well, if you're looking for a presenter for a railway-based programme, I saw Michael Portillo doing this very emotional programme 10 years ago about his dad. Now, what are the chances of that? I mean, that's what you call luck, isn't it? Yeah. And you see, uh, I mean, you know, as we go through life, we drop acorns along the way and some of them grow into oak trees. And it is, I mean, life is a game of luck. But I watch those programmes and you clearly love doing it. I do indeed. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm passionate about it. I'm, I'm very fascinated, not particularly by railways, to tell you the truth, but very much by history hmm. and by the people I meet and by the stories. I find the activity <clears throat> surprisingly similar to being uh, a minister because somebody, as it were, gives me a bit of paper with a brief on it. I read it, stick it in my pocket, and, as it were, go with it. You know, I do the words. So, actually, it's terribly similar to being a minister. Someone else has done the research and the work, but they put me on the spot and I have to do the words. And um, I do it with, uh, with, with passion because there's no point doing anything without passion and commitment. And I'm also somewhat aware that there are lots of people who can't travel this has been particularly true of the last two, two years, where almost no-one has been able to travel. <laughs> but even before that, you know, there are people who are elderly or disabled or whatever. And <clears throat> I have a big responsibility to, to travel on their behalf. I'm travelling... They are travelling with me vicariously. And so, you know, there has to be the passion of the journey, there has to be the description, there has to be the joy of discovery. And I must say, everything is a discovery to me. I mean, I, I don't go into it... I hope, you know, proselytising or pontificating, because I don't know this stuff. I find it out as I go along. No, you turn up in a place <coughs> and you learn the story. People tell me things. Yeah, and the, I find the history side of it personally very, very interesting. Well, thank you. I mean, that's the bit that, uh, that motivates me. Yeah, no, um, I love it. I love it. Now, Michael, you know, long career in politics, <coughs> long career as a commentator, <coughs> and you've seen Margaret Thatcher with the Western yes. Crisis, and we've uh, seen John Major with... ERM and back to basics and goodness knows what, and David Cameron, uh, you know, trying to deal with the referendum and Theresa May in trouble. So you've seen lots and lots of Conservative leaders in crisis mode. How much trouble is Boris in? Huge. <clears throat> and um, truth and falsehood, I think, are the most dangerous grounds for Prime Ministers. You mentioned Margaret Thatcher and the Westland crisis. Many people won't remember this now. But there was a day when she went down to the House of Commons... And she thought she might not be Prime Minister by that evening. We thought she might not be Prime Minister by that evening. House of Commons is a sort of medieval trial by water, you know. Um, and what happened was that on that occasion, Neil Kinnock, the leader of the opposition, did not make a good speech. And she was saved. But the thing that was lethal to her was her integrity was in question. It was whether she had briefed against one of her own ministers. That was... And this was Michael Heseltine? No, actually, it was Leon Britton. I oh, think, was it? Was the one. Heseltine resigned, didn't Hesselt Heseltine resigned, and, um, no, it was, it was all... I think it was about Leon Britton, okay. who was the Secretary of State for Trade and Industry. And um, I think that was the way around it was. Yeah. Anyway, it was, about in it was about integrity, which yeah. was terribly important in her case because she was a person of integrity. <laughs> it's, rather, it's rather the other way around this time, as it were, <laughs> because Boris, um, you know, has been caught out being economical with the truth. It's because he has a history of poor integrity that it is so lethal to him. But I think all of us have noticed that of all the things that Boris has done, you know, the chaotic private life, even the chaotic way of managing the government, Many of these things have been like water off a duck's back, as far as he was concerned, as far as the public was concerned. But when we got into this business of the parties that were held in Downing Street, mm. the public mood mm. seemed to change mm. conclusively. And the reason for that is very obvious, and it's been terribly well expressed by 
hundreds of people now about what they went through in the crisis and the contrast with what uh, Boris and the number 10 lot were doing. So this is, I think, absolutely lethal. Is it arrogance in number 10 that <clears throat> they were behaving? It, it seems to be almost worse than that, almost a lack of human empathy. I mean, when they... I mean, I go back to thinking that the regulations were wrong, they were unreasonable, they were inhumane, they were excessive. And I think that there just wasn't the empathy to understand what it meant for your mother to be dying, you not to be allowed to see her, for, for the funeral to occur and you not to be allowed to go there. You see, I'm, as, I'm not terribly puzzled by Boris's behaviour. I'm very puzzled by this fellow called Martin Reynolds, who is the mm. private secretary to the Prime Minister. What on earth what are you thinking? is the private secretary to the Prime Minister doing it, 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 in the middle of a lockdown, sending out an invitation to what, on the surface, would appear to be an illegal gathering? What has happened to well, the civil service? It did say at the bottom, bring your own booze. <laughs> oh, it's fairly well, no, clear. but, you know, one has to be careful about libel. I would say, you know, what on the surface could appear to be a criminal matter. Uh, how on earth did this happen? What, what has happened to... I, I mean, I think there's a whole list of things. You know, Simon Case, what was Simon Case doing judging these matters when for allegedly a, he'd been at one of the parties? For a very brief period. What was the head of the Foreign Office doing sunning himself at his villa when, when we were trying to get people out of Afghanistan. What has happened to the civil service? I'm, I'm, I'm as shocked by that as anything else. But anyway, look, the important, yeah. point, the important point today is Boris... I mean, he apologised today to the Commons. Right. But then sort of qualified it. I thought, I thought your analysis was um, spot on. I thought it was very subtle what you said, that you didn't use the word sorry. It's, it's, yeah. it, it's, it matters. It's, it's a matter of semantics, but it matters. Yeah. I agree with you that the first paragraph was great. The second paragraph, the garden is an extension of the office. Yeah, 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 this was yeah. becoming very mealy-mouthed at this point, so that was not so good. <clears throat> but I think it is... Um, I think it's lethal. I mean, I've changed my view on this quite recently. I did a, an interview with Liam Halligan just before Christmas, and I was emphasising the point that Boris is an amazing election winner, proven election winner, that the Tories would be crazy to get rid of him. But in the last few weeks, it seems now that he's a proven electoral liability. So I think the two questions for the Tory party would be, you know, is there any possibility that he could recover from this? If the election is still three years away, will people by then have forgotten the anger that they feel today? It's possible. Three years is quite a long time. I mean, try and remember what yeah. was going on three years ago. Three years is a long time, so it's possible. Yeah, but when trust is breached... And then second question, surely, also, are we simply going to see one thing like this after another, after another, after, after another... And, you know, the dismal business over Owen Paterson, I think before we even got into the revelation of the first party, I think, you know, most Tories would now conclude that um, it is likely that the chaos will continue, that life mm. will always be like this. But uh, make no mistake, the Tories would be taking enormous risk if they dumped Boris because they're getting rid of someone who at least, you know, won elections pretty consistently in the past. Two mayoral elections, yeah, yeah, a referendum, yeah, yeah, yeah. a referendum and uh, then the majority of 80, and they'll trade him in for Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak, um, in many ways, better candidates, better, better able to be Prime Minister, I dare say. But can they win elections? I but don't know. Could be an outsider. Could be someone that we haven't thought of. Whoever it is, it's not a proven election winner. That's my point. No, no, I get that. Bor Boris was the most exceptional choice as mm. Conservative leader because he had this extraordinary record of winning elections. So, in a way, they weren't taking a chance on that. They knew that. But it doesn't, doesn't feel very Conservative, does it? The fanatical drive to net zero, the extension of government into our lives in every area, the increase on tax, 
national insurance, uh, barely lifted a finger. I don't, know, I don't know what the Conservative Party is now. Well, that's the no. point I'm making. I mean, so... But I mean, you know, there, there are at least two and probably three Conservative parties. Uh, you were just talking earlier about the Scottish Conservative Party, yeah. which is going off on its own. Let's leave that to one side for a moment. Although, I think it is very important what has happened there because you can't, you can't have a separate Scottish Conservative Party. And if they're saying the Prime Minister should go, I think that starts uh, a landslide. But the other sense in which there's uh, more than one party, talk about the Red Bull seat. I mean, these Red Bull MPs, they are not, I think, Thatcherite. They're, you know, they're longing for public spending in their constituencies. They're levelling up. They're levelling up. And so, you know, that's not the Conservatism mm. that I knew or that I remember. Mm. And, and they're, they're quite an important group. And, of mm. course, to some extent, if they stay there, they are the future of the party. So I, I, it's not quite clear, you know, to what a Conservative leader has to appeal. But anyway, my summary of where we are now... I'm not sure. Let, let, let me ask myself an easy question. Will he be leader at the next election? No. Will he be leader in a year's time? I, I don't think so. No. Will you make it through to the um, local elections? I wouldn't count on that. Interesting. Now, let's remind ourselves what sort of conservative <laughs> you were. Let's have a look at Michael. Oh, no. Let's have a look. Let's embarrass him. Let us. Let us teach our children the history of this remarkable country. I don't mean the wishy-washy sociological flim-flam that passes for history in many of our schools today. I don't mean the politically correct debunking anti-patriotic nonsense of modern textbooks. I mean the real history of heroes and bravery, of good versus evil, of freedom against tyranny. The SAS have a famous motto. Who dares, wins. We dare. We will win. Oh, proper stuff. I'd vote for that. That's patriotic. <laughs> I'm teasing you a bit with that. But, I mean, you were a contender. I thought, I thought you were going to go all the way. I, 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 yes, Marlon Brando. I was a, <laughs> I was a contender. Um, I haven't re-watched that speech. And I'm, I'm quite struck by how similar some of the themes are. All that stuff about yes. De yes. debunking political history. Correctness, political correctness, education. Who knew that that was so big even then? Of course, we didn't have the word wokery in those days. No, but, or cancel you know, culture, but that's what you were culture. on We're still talking yeah. about the same thing. Yeah. Yes. yeah, no, absolutely. So it didn't quite happen, but you've, <laughs> you've made a great life for yourself. And, of course, you've been busy broadcasting. And on that theme, where are we going with the BBC in this country? It's been such an important part of our lives very important part of our lives. Do we continue with the licence fee? Do we go on as we are with the BBC? The uh, analogy I've used before is that the BBC is a polar bear standing on a shrinking piece of ice because the licence fee, I don't think, can possibly survive. Now, this is not an attack on the BBC. In fact, I defend the BBC. I want the BBC to prosper. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that the licence fee is in the medium to long term defensible because we have such a multiplicity of channels, why on earth should one of them uniquely be financed by a sort of taxation? Well, it is a tax, really. It's, it's really a tax. So I don't, think, I don't think that is a sustainable position. And meanwhile, the BBC, funnily enough, has not set out to perform its public service duty. So if you look at the schedules now, it's very difficult to find um, excellent classical music or marvellous history lectures. I'm talking in particular about television. Radio is still pretty well sustained, but television has become pretty anti-culture on the BBC. So I don't think the position is sustainable. Therefore, 
I think the BBC should have been from years ago working to find an alternative way of surviving. And, uh, you know, one always has this very sad reflection that 15, 20 years ago, Netflix was a video rental store and the BBC was an enormous global name with a fantastically prestigious reputation. And today Netflix has taken over the world and the BBC is seeing its income shrinking year by year. So I think they've got something wrong. I mean, I've just, just spent a month in Spain and it is so tiresome to me that as soon as I get there, even though I paid my licence fee, I can't watch the BBC because I happen not to be in the United Kingdom at the yeah. time. I mean, I think, you know, the BBC should be available to everyone in the world over a pay barrier, by all means, like other television is, but it should be available to everyone in the world. And I, w what they've done, I think, is they have expended their resources in defending what they've got, not realising that that's their disadvantage. I mean, it's like, I don't know, it's like... Many of our trade unions, you know, the NUM defending the coal mine, yeah. and what we actually and needed, the world's moving on. We needed to look to what was coming next, yeah, no, and that's I think that's been the failure of leadership in the in the BBC. However, um, they do pay most of my income, so uh, <laughs> I, I, I want to make it very clear that I I support the BBC. I just think it should be funded differently. <laughs> Michael Portello, thank you for joining. <laughs> thank you on talking. Great to see you. <laughs>